It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is installment number two in my uh, new series called Spiritual Lessons from World War One." As we go through this, uh, chronology is going to be one of the things that's in your mind like, okay, now are we going to be going through World War I or are we just going to be talking about some big picture things? I'm, I'm famous for starting larger series by sort of doing some global things first, which can be rather uh, challenging, especially if you like to get into the storyline, like get me into the storyline. Uh, and I'm sort of that way too, and, and yet there's certain major themes that are harder to stick in once you get going, and there's certain things that are going to happen because of World War I in the long term. Like I've already sort of prepped you that World War I is going to shape the next 100 years, but I could say the next 100 plus years because we're just over 100 years past it. And uh, our world has been defined by this strange four-year epoch, and uh, in such a way that it's going to startle you to realize that the decisions of men, uh, the, the way in which events can unfurl uh, is, is tremendously intriguing to me to see how history is shaped and formed. But just the way that you could look at World War I and say, look at all the evil that came into the world in and through this. I want you to recognize that Jesus has a countermeasure in every situation to turn what the enemy means for evil into good. And so you could look at Adam's decision, you know, that's our first World War I, you know, right at the tree, right? And you're going to see all of this impact. From one man's decision, everyone is going to be impacted. And that's sort of a World War I type of feel. It is. And then you're going to see Jesus stand in the gap from one man's obedience, from one man's righteousness, everything turns. We are believers, we are Christians. So therefore our eyes aren't simply on what the enemy is up to, it's on what our God is going to do with all of that. Lord, what is your answer? And his countermeasures are not always in the time frame that we would desire. There's certain injustices in our world right now, which I know have been like acid sitting on your soul. And if you're like me, I cannot stand injustice. It is a very, very difficult thing for me to look at, and I, I need to do something, and that's good. However, there are certain things that I don't have a say in, and they're just there. But I want God to remedy it. I want him to address it. And he doesn't always move in the time frame that we would like. When the Jews receive a promise of a Messiah, you could only imagine they're like, all right, we're sort of ready for that. And then time is going to pass, and they're going to fall under the boot of Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to fall under the boot of the Roman Empire, and they're going to continue to cry out for the countermeasure. They're going to cry out for the turn, where God turns what the enemy has meant for evil into a triumph. And so walking through history is a very, very important thing to recognize how we as an individual soul walk through our history as well. There are things in your life that you want remedied immediately, and sometimes they linger a little longer than you would want, but your God, in the fullness of time, will do it. 
This uh, message, part two, is called Realpolitik. It's one of those words that's really fun to say, and so you can you know, mutter it to yourself uh, in your chair. But it is a fun word to say, Realpolitik. And this is like one of those smart guy words. Okay, so the, the intellectuals and the brainiacs and the hip politicians use words like this. So Eric doesn't get a chance to say it very often, right? So I'm taking it full advantage. I had to name my messages just so I could say it because it's a fun word to say, realpolitik. But what that means is probably far more important than how it sounds because it's a very real thing in our world. So this has been around since the beginning and yet, you know, as time progresses, you get terms for things. Just like politically correct or political correctness. That's always been around. It didn't just, you know, come about in the past 20, 30 years when we started using this word, right, or this phrase. And so sometimes we get phrases for it that a generation or a culture can grip. And we're like, uh-huh, I understand that. So realpolitik. This is a simple layman's version of understanding it. Come on. Let's be honest, what's really happening here? Okay, you know how politicians will you know, give their overtures of all these noble things that they're gonna do for society, and, you know, to get your vote, they're gonna do this for you. And what realpolitik is, is just removes all that veneer and says, okay, what's your real motive? You wanna get elected, right? That's realpolitik, okay? Let's just be honest here, okay? You can say all these grand statements, but that's just to move the dumb masses. I want to know what's really going on. Okay, now I want you to recognize there is a truth to that. And that's a lot of what politics is, which is very disturbing to those of us that are considered the dumb masses. <laughs> and yet, you need to recognize that there's two kingdoms at play here. A kingdom that does function with realpolitik. And they have an ulterior motive. They have an agenda that they want to put some propaganda on, and they want to make it look like it's noble and good and, and moral and just, when in actuality it's debased and they just want power, and they want more territory, they want more money, okay? And that, that's disgusting. All of us would agree. However, we live in a world that is drenched in it. And then we have another kingdom. And my question that I just want to set before you as we begin is, how does God's kingdom work? Does God say one thing with his mouth to cover up his real motive? Isn't that an interesting question? Because we have grown up and we've been surrounded by a system of government that was meant to reflect the kingdom government. Government is sponsored by God and it's meant to showcase a kingdom. Mm, something's wrong. You see, God's kingdom is very different and it does not function under the banner of what we could call realpolitik. So realpolitik, a lot of people, when they uh, discuss it, are going to go back to a guy named Otto von Bismarck. So this guy's a German. He's a German diplomat who is actually going to be responsible, for, you could almost say it this way, almost like personally responsible for the instability in the world in Europe in 1914 at the start of World War I because he's going to negotiate all these treaties. Why? His whole goal is to preserve and protect Germany but he has all sorts of ulterior motives for all of his things that he's doing to ensure Germany. And of course, if you study Otto von Bismarck, you're gonna say, this guy's pretty smart. I, I, and you're gonna chuckle too, and it's like, that was a pretty good idea. Oh, that was good, that was good. It's the classic 
ulterior motive. In other words, he's giving someone what they want to get really what he wants. And so his famous quote is, politics is the art of the possible. And so that's gonna become important as we progress in this because I want you to just realize that's a, it's a very pragmatic, sorry, that's a big word. It's a very logical, simplistic way of looking at something. It's just like, hey, if that can't be done, then we're not going to, we're not going to act like we could do it, okay? It, let's get something done that is, that is real and possible, which sounds good. So here's another uh, guy who's going to be realpolitik. His name is E.H. Carr. He's a British diplomat during World War I, okay, so he will be part of the British government in World War I, and this is his quote. In politics, realism, remember the word realpolitik, you're going to see the word real, and you're going to see this concept of politics. In other words, let's be real. Uh, let's get to the reality of what's going on. In politics, realism means that there is no moral dimension, and that what is successful is right, and what is unsuccessful is wrong. So if it works, that means it's correct. If it doesn't work, well, that was a bad idea. Realpolitik. And so as a result, if you need to kill a million people to accomplish something in your administration, and it works, and it accomplishes that in your administration, that's right. You follow me? There's no moral content to this. You're making decisions based on success or failure. And your success or failure isn't measured according to the kingdom of heaven. It's measured based on your earthly uh, metrics. So I'm going to give you a contrast. Now, you guys already know that I have sort of a leaning towards Winston Churchill, okay? That just sort of comes out in the things that I say. However, we're right in the middle of World War I here, and we have a problem. And this is something called the Bolshevik Re Revolution. The Russians arguably one of the most powerful empires, if not the most powerful empire uh, in the world at this time, is going to be going through a catastrophic breakdown. And their, the, the lineage of leadership, the Romanov Empire, led now by Nicholas II, who's a czar, who's a Caesar, like a king or an emperor over Russia, is going to actually abdicate his place because of the pressure and there's this revolution that is taking place. The Bolsheviks, we're gonna, we would typically call it like the communist movement. That's ultimately what its expression is going to be. And so we have something called the Russian Civil War. And you have two different opinions in Great Britain about this. Now you have a country that arguably, you know, if under, under the Romanov leadership, Nicholas II, you know, whether or not that's a good leadership, right? What, what, what Churchill is going to say is, it's at least stable for the people. And if the communists come in, we have, we have crisis of monstrous proportions here. This is going to bring an evil into this territory that is unspeakable. This is Winston Churchill's thinking. So look at the two perspectives on this. E.H. Carr is going to say, you know, should we, in, this is in regards to, should we as Great Britain involve ourselves? Should we send troops to intervene to stave off the Bolsheviks and from their takeover of the government? I just want to set that before you, almost like you're a politician for a little bit here, okay? We have an evil. Now, you can actually look at 100 years of that evil. 
Okay, you've act, you can actually measure and see what's going to happen. This, this nation called Russia is going to become the Soviet Union. And there's, all, there's still things going on in that country even today that are direct byproducts of this. And Winston Churchill is going to say, we need to do something. We need to stop this before it starts. What's his motive? It's moral. He sees evil encroaching. And in his posture, if he sees evil, he wants to stop it. Of course, if you read uh, all of his, uh, the writings of World War II, that's exactly his concern about Hitler. That's an evil. We need to stop it. And so Hitler, I'm sorry, Churchill wants to stop this revolution. E.H. Carr has a totally different perspective. This is what he says. He says, no, we can't send troops over there. The Bolsheviks are going to win. Why waste our efforts, our resource, and our men? Remember, politics is the art of the possible. If it's impossible to stop the Bolshevik Revolution, I don't care about morals, evil. We're not going to make any difference. We're just going to waste our resources. So no, I vote no. We do not send any aid out there. Now look at Churchill's response. We must help. It's the right thing to do. We must not let communism take over Russia. And then imagine I ask Churchill the question, but what if we fail? Because it's probably not going to make any difference. We still must try. Now, which one do you vote for? I mean, think about that. Can't you understand, though, the real politique to say, guys, this isn't going to make any difference. Why waste the resources? Russia's going to fall. Let's accept it. And the other side says, we must do something. Now, I have just created a tension inside of your own spiritual life because this is how we live our life. Are you going to live your life realpolitik? Where it's just like, you know what? No one can really live this way. I don't know that God's actually going to come through on this. And so you just pull an EH car and say, no, you know, the Bolsheviks are going to win anyways. I'm going to be ruled by sin no matter what. Ha, burp, scratch. In other words, you yield you give way to the power of evil. Instead of, even though it seems impossible, you say we must do something. Every great story in history starts on this side of the ledger. Have you ever noticed that? It's always the impossible, standing in front of men and women, and they rise up and say, but something must be done. Realpolitik is the polar opposite of the kingdom of heaven. It just is. There is nothing similar in it. Everything Jesus came to do, you want to know the most impossible mission that has ever been run in history, to save humanity from their sin. It's like, could you imagine asking the politicians about that one? Should we take the king of the universe and clothe him in a human body? Talk about a waste, as if he could actually do that. I mean, who's going to be able to pull off that stunt? He would have to live perfectly down here. He's going to be hunted. He's going to be hated and despised. They're going to kill him. And he goes into this mission, and he does it. That's the story of history. So there's our quote, guys. I just wanted you to stare at it a little, because there's a part of you that has a little Otto von Bismarck, a little plumpness around the middle, that is going to say, but that's impossible. We couldn't do it. We shouldn't do it. If it's not possible, we're not doing it. So, realpolitik. I have another statement about it. It's not about right or wrong. It's about power, control, and survival. 
And there is a part of your life that leans realpolitik. But I can't do that. I mean, even when you start hearing the, the clear message of the gospel, you know that you start thinking realpolitik? It's like, you know what that would cost me? You know that I would have to give this up? I mean, you're reasoning through it. You're deducing it all. You're counting the cost, and you don't know that you like it. It's going to cost you everything? That's a little too expensive. That's realpolitik. It's just called the flesh. It's called self-centeredness. You see, God is calling us to pick up our cross and to follow him into a territory that is very different than what works best for me, or if I'm leading a nation, just what works best for our nation, which is a really interesting tension if you're a world leader, if you were listening to this. It's like, that is so unrealistic, Eric. You can't think that way. As a world leader, if you were leading America and you're thinking, hey, how can we give of our strength to support the world around us? It's like, hey, come on, let's protect ourselves first which there's truth in that. If I'm a parent, which I am, and if I have resource coming in, I want to make sure that I take care of my family before I start taking care of the neighbors, lest I prove to be an infidel. If I'm not caring for that which is in my own range first. However, as a family, I still have resource and I want to commission my family and say, hey, could we go without this meal so that we can give it to this person down the street who doesn't have food? And then as a family, we can say, let's do that. You see, the entire nature of a family is defined by its leadership. And so even though my family does need to be cared for, I also want to inspire my family to live in a way that is truly outward and impossible. So here's a quote. Uh, I couldn't get a good picture uh, of this uh, easily, but uh, this is a quote by a guy named Eric Winston Ludi, and I emphasize the Winston on there if you can see. And it was recent. It was 2022 in a local Starbucks. Uh, and, you know, Audubon Bismarck says that politics is the art of the possible. And I'm going to tell you that faith is the art of the impossible. You see a difference there? You see... I understand E.H. Carr's thinking because I've had that thinking pressed upon me by a certain dimension of my own being all throughout my life. Think rationally, Eric. Come on. This is only going to get you in hot water. If you speak that message, then people are not going to like you. And if people don't like you, it could hinder your you know, ability to make money. It could impact your you know, reputation in the community. could make your life difficult. Realpolitik, Eric, Let's, let's think it through. If it's going to do that harm to you, don't do it. And yet, the kingdom of heaven, faith, functions after a different mentality. It is willing to risk all of those things, even though they're on the table, my reputation, my financial security, my comforts in this world, that I am willing to let those go to do that which is right. That which is Christ. That which is pleasing to him, that which is obedient, even if it is deemed impossible by Otto von Bismarck and E.H. Carr. Even if they say, but that is an unwise maneuver, Ludi, because how in the world would you pull that off? I recognize that in and of myself and in and of what's in my own pockets, this isn't going to work, which is why I'm tapping into divine power. You see, as a believer, I call on something higher than what I have resource, personal resource in. I am calling on the divine 
treasury of heaven, the army of heaven to come and work on my behalf. You know how ridiculous it would be for Elisha and his servant when they're surrounded by the Syrians, if they're measuring it realpolitik, it's like, what is the best decision here? There's two against an army. Wouldn't it make sense that we do whatever we can to just sort of bring peace to the situation lest they lop off our head? Instead, Elisha is totally nonplussed, totally unmoved. His, his servant's having a rough time with it, right? And so he says, Lord, open my servant's eyes that he would see. You see, what does Elijah know? Elisha know that the Syrians don't know and his servant doesn't know. That is, that those that are with him are greater than those that are against him. See, Elisha sees the God of the impossible. Do you? So, realpolitik, I don't know what to call Christianity in direct contrast, but Christianitique, that was, that was my best you know, attempt at. It's not very good, I recognize that. But what is Christianitique about? It's all about love, mercy, justice, and humility. It's the exact polar opposite of this entire political system, this apparatus of government that we have all grown up around. It's about giving up your life to ensure the kingdom comes and his will is done. That's, I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense to you know, one of these good uh, logic-based, pragmatic politicians. It's like, that's not going to help us at all. Micah 6.8, here's a good statement of the government of the king, okay? And so you, this is the government of your life. This is the government of the church. This is the government of any kingdom that fears God. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, in every situation, in every Russian Civil War crisis, you have resource. And yet, I mean, how many times have, have you felt this? You know, as you, you see a need around you, and you have resource, but you don't have time. And it seems totally preposterous for you to turn around on the road and come back to that person. And you know, all sorts of things. I mean, I've run into these situations so many times in my life where I have a realpolitik voice inside of me going, you know, that is so unreasonable. It, God wouldn't ask that of you. I mean, that is just an expenditure beyond what is right and appropriate for a human to make. The veneer of propaganda. So when you get close to war, you're going to recognize this thing called propaganda. And every nation does it. I mean, every, every, if you were to start, if we were to take, peel off the top layer of our, our country here and whatever country you come from, you're going to recognize that there's constantly, there's truth and then there's what the government wants you to think. When World War I was unfolding, British journalists were not allowed to write what they were seeing over there. It had to go through a filter and then what came out were the good stuff, the things that would cause men to keep signing up to come over to the battle. And it actually makes total sense. I have to acknowledge that. If all you're saying is it's a bloodbath and everyone's miserable, this is torment, you need men. And you need them to sign up. I mean, they're eventually going to get to the arm-twisting state where they're going to force it. However, they didn't want to do that. They wanted men to go of their own volition. However, if you're honest with what is happening in World War I, this is the greatest, single greatest horror 
that anyone has ever seen. This is, and I, I haven't gone into it, and I am even questioning how deep I should go into it. That's how bad World War I is. No one had seen such violence. It was a breakout of violence that no one was prepared for. Because of the advancement of technology, the explosiveness of what was taking place, the danger to the human body was off the charts, and they didn't have the answer in technology for armor, for helmets. And so those first, that first month of battle is so startling that people are having a tough time swallowing. Political leaders back in Britain that didn't even see it when they're getting reports back have no idea how to compute what is going on. No one in the world did. So you can understand why propaganda plays its part. It's like, you know what? I don't think this is going to help anyone to know this. I get that. You know, there are things that I don't just tell everyone in my life everything I know. Why? Because I'm a protector, too. There's things I know that protect someone's dignity, and so I'm not just going to go share that. They entrusted a secret to me. I'm going to keep that, right? I'm a pastor. Well, there's also other things I could know about what's going on in the world that I don't just share with my wife and my kids. Unless it's beneficial to them, unless it's going to edify them, they don't need to know that. Where it does help them and benefit them, they need to know it, right? And so you could call that propaganda, but propaganda is sometimes, in our mind, taking what is happening and spinning it to your favor. And so there's going to be a lot of that in this war. And in our world, there's a lot of that. And so what you have is you have truth of what's really happening. And some of us, when we listen to the media today, don't quite feel like we're getting that. We feel like we're getting a spin on reality, and it's not actually what's taking place. So I walked through something, we could go back to the late 90s, and Leslie and I write a book, uh, we, we actually had quite a few books back then, but When God Rich a Love Story was the book we were most known for back then, and it, was, it spent quite a long time on the bestseller list. And there was something taking place in the world at that time, which now in hindsight, people refer to as the purity movement. And by the way, that's usually not a compliment either. In other words, this has led to a great uh, debacle within the church that I've found myself in at various times, and really not wanting to be. But because I was a voice back then, uh, I have to pick up pieces now. And so many of you know the Josh Harris uh, story and his meltdown spiritually, his marriage breakdown. And so I, since, you know, I was close to all of this. And so I've felt this in a very intense way. And one of the, the key challenges that has come back, you know, because Leslie and I stood for a very simple truth. And you can read any of our books. You could listen to any of our old messages and confirm this. Okay. We have never given a formula. We have never said, if you do this, your life will be easy. We have said, come follow Jesus pick up your cross, lay down your life. Same thing I'm teaching you, okay? However, I would say, if you want to be successful in relationships with the opposite sex, first, get to know the creator of the opposite sex. This has been our message. And how do you do that? You give up your life so that you can enter into intimate fellowship with him. And that is the best foundation for a great love story. And if there's one person in the universe that could write a great love story, it's not you. It's him. So give him the controls of your life. And we call that the pen. Give him the controls. Give him the lead position. So 
after all of that, uh, you know, I've been attacked with all sorts of demeaning statements, you know, that I lied to, to a generation. There's a book I think Leslie said came out that was called When God Wrecked My Love Story. And it's like, oh, well, that's a compliment. Uh, I, I, I feel it, I feel it. Uh, and it's an inference to say we were lied to. You promised us that if we did this, 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 and this, we would have it easy. That's literally what's been said. It's like, I don't know who you heard that from, but I know it didn't come out of this mouth, right? And so it's an interesting thing because we have these tensions that exist. Sometimes our realpolitik side is based on, if not always, based on disillusionment and what we perceive as broken promises. Okay, now, I can say in regards to what I've always taught, I would still teach it, okay? And if we had a class in here, which I don't think is, we're set up to have it, on relationships with the opposite sex, I mean, we, I talk with the guys about it quite a bit, but not in the way I used to. Talk about romance and things like that, I'd still say the same thing. What I just told you is true. You wanna be successful in relationships? Let Jesus have his rightful position. And when he is in that rightful position, he knows how to build love stories. He's very good at it. And he does not wreck love stories, just, just so you know. So did it over-promise and under-deliver? It's the same thing people feel about the Bible. God says all this stuff, but then I trusted him and my life fell to pieces. Huh. This is oftentimes what leads to a realpolitik type of sneer. It's like, hey. All of that is a bunch of bunk. Let's just live for ourselves. Let's make sure we self-preserve. We can give the air that we're doing all these noble things, but in reality, we know how we want to live. We need to live. Here's Amy Carmichael. This is a key line, and I want you to just ponder this. It says, two men looked through prison bars. One saw mud, the other stars. In other words, I've gone through a lot of trials, a lot of tribulations, a lot of suffering in my life. And the guy next to me could go through a lot of trials, a lot of difficulties, a lot of tribulation in his life. We both have what we could call prison bars in front of us. In other words, I don't wanna be here in this situation. How'd I get in this situation? We could both be behind prison bars. However, there's two ways of looking through those bars. When I go through a difficulty, I wanna look up and I wanna see stars. But you could also look through those same prison bars and see mud and you're staring at the mud in your life instead of the stars. You see, there's two different ways to appropriate every situation you walk through. Two men could be in a trench in World War I. One guy comes home and says, that was the greatest experience of my life. I mean, literally, they did. <laughs> and the other guy, right next to him, could be destroyed by it. Totally and utterly destroyed, never able to speak about it and have a palsy for the rest of his existence. They were right there next to each other. How we appropriate the challenges in our life is so critical. There are challenges, and some of you are in the middle of them right now, but there's some of, them, some of you that have challenges just up ahead. But when that bomb blast hits, how you appropriate that difficulty. And for a World War I soldier, how you appropriate maybe even the propaganda when you return home and realize the true story was never told. No one has any idea what you just went through over there. And what has been broadcast to the culture is not actually true. That's fake news. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In other words, we are living in a world that sets us up for disillusionment. It does. However, I want to assure you of something. 
that when you root yourself to rock in your life, to the word of truth, God is faithful and true. And so how we navigate through this is of the utmost importance. The origins of disillusionment, what we perceive as unfulfilled promise. When your parent says something to you, could it be as simple as I'm gonna be at the play tonight? I won't miss that. And then you're doing your play and you look out into the crowd and you see your mom with an empty seat next to her. Those moments can define you. As strange as it is, it's like, why would that matter? Come on, it's just an empty seat. It's a broken promise. And it's a broken promise from someone who has an authoritative position in your life. Someone that you trusted to prove faithful and true, but didn't. And it creates a hollowness in your life. And when we have hollowness in our life, we need to fill it. We need to satisfy that hollowness. And so when you turn to God and find that, oh, he is the father that never fails. You see, if you're going to parent well, you definitely want to get your kids aimed in that direction from a young age. First of all, you want to be quick to apologize and say you're sorry because you'll need to do that a lot. But then you also want to make it clear that where you fall short, your God never does. Lest they assume God is like you. Because we as humans will fall short. We are prone to failure. But our God is not. However, because of parenting, because of governmental lies, our leadership in the world in which we live has failed us which has caused many of us to move more into a cynical realpolitik position in how we navigate forward in our life, as opposed to a faith-filled position that I can trust my God. If he says it, he'll do it. If he says he's gonna be at the play tonight, guarantee you, I'll bet my entire life, all the blood inside of me, he'll be there. You see, that's a confidence, and you can say, how could you have that confidence after being disappointed in so many times in your life, Eric? Because my disappointment isn't in God. My disappointment has been in men and in the systems of men, even the religious infrastructures of men. But God never fails. To separate out the two is very, very important. God desires men to be faithful. He desires our word to be true. It's not the opposite. It's not like he's sponsoring that. A father is supposed to model a pattern so that when you grow up in a family, you're seeing a man who protects you, who cares for you, who provides for you, who nurtures you, and who is consistent. And when you have a play and he says he's going to be there, he's there. That's what God intends, so that you can understand the nature of God more clearly. But when the man model fails, what's happening inside of your soul? World War I was declared to an entire generation all the Brits that are signing up uh, and for the draft and, and going into to battle, it was said to be the war to end all wars. I know many of you have probably heard that somewhere in your life. This was the war to end all wars. Yeah, right. Was this the war to end all wars? First of all, it was going to be a couple months. And then it turned into more than a couple months. What, 40 million people dead? I mean, so staggering, we don't have words for it. And these aren't easy deaths, you know, dying in your old age. This is extreme, horror-filled, torture type of deaths. This is violence at its highest level the world had never seen. 
This is evil being perpetrated. This is like people pleading for mercy and getting shot anyways. This is like stuff that you can't sleep at night after you go through it. An entire generation is being exposed to this. The war to end all wars? This was the war to start all the other wars. World War II is a direct result of World War I, and I'll explain that. But World War II is going to take place because of how World War I World War I ends. So if you grew up in this generation, could you imagine how vulnerable you would be to, yeah, right. Whatever the government says, I already know it's a lie. It's sort of like looking at your parents and saying, yeah, I don't believe a word you're saying. You know what we have a tendency to do then? We take the Bible and we say, yeah, right. You see, we are taking our authority in this earthly sense and we're applying it to our heavenly authority. And this is why so many people left what was called organized religion after World War I. So yesterday, when we were in our class here, I, I taught on fact, faith, and experience. Okay, so there's three uh, characters that are committed, commissioned to walk a ridgepole. And I know some of you are looking at me like, we just heard this twice yesterday. Oh, I know, get used to it. It's probably gonna be about 30 times in this semester. So there's a, a barn and it has a ridge pole and you're like, I could walk that, but you can't walk this one. This is like impossible. It's like a razor's edge. And the first character's name is Fact. And Fact gets out there and walks it. You're like, what? I thought it was impossible. I know, it is. But Fact, in Christianity, we call it truth or we actually call it Jesus or the word of God. And he's able to do something that no man could do. Now, faith is in a position to follow. That's where you and I are. And when faith fixes its gaze on fact, it actually gains balance and is able to walk the ridgepole. And life would be all good and wonderful and blissful if that's all there was. But there's a third character, and his name is experience. Another word could be emotion. But it fits well into this message because he is constantly clawing. And he's reminding you of disappointments in the past. He's reminding you of what looks to be failures. It's the disillusionment of your life. It's all those times that you trusted something and it seemed to falter and fall to pieces. And if you allow that to turn you, you lose your balance. Faith loses its balance and falls off the ridgepole and lands in that manure pile at the bottom of the barn. And the secret for faith to follow fact is that it must ignore all of that noise. All of that disillusionment, that emotion, that experience behind you and say, but what does God say? Not, but my father failed me. Not, but my church hurt me. Not, but my, my government lied to me. What does God say? And if you start walking, you gain balance. Faith gains balance and pulls off the impossible life if it follows the fact and doesn't allow that emotion, that experience, that disillusion behind it to dictate its course. So I'm going to, and by the way, I need to add something to that before I go to this next slide. God intends for your experience to walk the ridgepole. He intends it to match with the facts. But for that to work, you have to start by ignoring it. In other words, it's not that he doesn't care about it. He wants to solve it, but the only way to solve it is that you can't be the one to try and fix it and focus on it. You can't let it define you. So what I did on the screen here, I took our fact, faith, and experience, 
and I changed it out for the impossible, faith, and the possible. Remember, uh, politics is the art of the possible. Well, Christianity is the art of the impossible. And so as a result, faith, instead of looking at what is possible or what seems to be impossible, is willing to follow the God of the impossible and say, God, I trust you. I don't know how this will work. You know, my entire life is summed up that way, is moving in a direction that people around me are concerned about. Uh, Eric, uh, do we need to talk this through at a deeper level? Have you thought this through? I, I get people always saying that. Have you thought about this? I mean, this could really, you know. Yeah, I, first off, I'm not trying to think of all the negatives that could happen. I know they exist. I'm trying to focus on what God is leading me towards. But that's into the territory of impossible. I know. He seems to really like it there. Our God has a strange attraction to impossible things. We don't. We tend to be like Otto von Bismarck with our belly. And we would rather sit and you know, make our statements about, oh, that's unrealistic, oh, that wouldn't work, as opposed to watch what my God will do. Samuel Hines, who's a historian, is speaking of a generation that went off to war in World War I. A generation of innocent young men, their heads full of high abstractions like honor, glory, and England, went off to war to make the world safe for democracy. They were slaughtered in stupid battles planned by stupid generals. Those who survived were shocked, disillusioned, and embittered by their war experiences and saw that their real enemies were not the Germans but the old men at home who had lied to them. They rejected the values of the society that had sent them to war and in doing so separated their own generation from the past and from their cultural inheritance. Now that's not someone from a Christian vantage point writing. This is someone writing. This is what happened. And if you study it, you'll realize that is what happened. It's a very, very sad tale. So you're like, why are we talking about it then, Eric? Because we live in a time where we could follow the same trajectory if we're not guarded in our souls. We need to recognize that oh, though there could be stupid generals out there and stupid politicians out there that are making decisions, and though even our parental heritage may not be the sharpest tool in the shed, and they may not perfectly model the kingdom of heaven, we have a God who is faithful and true. And do not diminish and denigrate the nature of our God based on the failure of the authoritative systems around us. Here's another story. A guy named Ronald Skirth. He's a British soldier. And this is what he wrote after the war. I said the men's morale was breaking. I suppose I should have... I, I should have... I should... I, su I should... Boy, something's wrong with this sentence. I should have included myself. I had long since lost any desire to continue as a fighting soldier. Idealists and cowards aren't of much use on a battlefield, and I was a bit of both. At 19, I found my standard, standards of conduct obsolete, my ideals shattered. I'd lost all faith in institutional religion. My church authorized me to break the Sixth Commandment in the name of patriotism. Eventually, I worked it all out, at least for myself. God was all right. It was we who were wrong. Why should he care what happened to us, Lot? We had brought this war, this war evil into existence, not God. The reason for all this was the wickedness in ourselves, not the indifference of God. That's why the more murders you committed, the bigger the hero you became. That's what made your superior officer slap you on the back and say, splendid old chap, jolly good shooting, when your shells had destroyed in minutes the beauty that craftsmen had toiled lifetimes to create. Disillusion is very, very bitter when you're young, thoughtful, imaginative, and sensitive. 
you are growing up, and I know not all of you are quote-unquote young, but many of you are, and you're growing up in a generation that is setting you up for disillusionment. It's almost like a tactical maneuver. If you trust any political schematic out there right now, it's cloaking something. It's not necessarily healthy. You could listen to the conservative pundits or you could listen to the liberal, okay? Now, I happen to be conservative in my political views, right? And so I could lean towards conservatism. However, it's still going to give you a solution that is not the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is going to still give man solutions, and those man solutions will not be able to truly reach the depths of men's souls and set them free. Our nation needs a revival, not a Republican on the throne. You want to solve the ills of our country, you need to go deeper. And as a result, you could get a great leader on the throne. I know I'm calling it a throne, but you know, in the White House, in this country, that believes what you believe, that has great character even. I mean, it could be an impressive guy, but if you put your confidence in that, it'll still fall short of meeting the true need of this country. We'll have civil war is what we'll have because we're a divided country. The soul of this country is rotting. That's its problem. It needs Jesus Christ. And so as a result, let's not allow the enemy to set us up for that disillusionment. Let's remember, we live in a world that has fallen and in need of Jesus, and right now it needs him desperately, and you just happen to be entrusted with the solution. Because you could say, what can I do? I can't, I mean, I'm not a politician. I'm not someone who could probably run for president. Well, probably. Maybe I should even remove the word probably, at least right now, right? Maybe one of you is going to be groomed for it in the future. But you could say, what am I supposed to do? You are a believer. You actually have the power of the Almighty far more than any politician could ever have unless they are carrying around the same. You actually have everything that is needed to alter the course of history if you will walk in obedience. Three options for handling disillusionment. So, I have faced disillusionment many times in my life. I remember seeing the backside of the Christian system. I was traveling all over the world and I was in the green room. I don't know if you guys know what that is. That's the room that the talent is in before they walk out onto the stage. And I was in the green room with many famous people. And I got to see the realpolitik side. I got to see what they were really like before they came out and gave this Christian front. You want to know how disillusioned that is to a young 20-year-old who looked up to that guy, who read all of his books? I mean, I, I had my whole underpinning start to go and I, I didn't know what to do with what I saw because I felt like the whole thing was fake. I don't want to be fake. I don't want to be like that. I genuinely love Jesus. I don't want this. So what do I do? Do I give up and say, oh, I, you know, I, I don't like Christianity? Do I throw out Christianity? Do I throw out the church? What do you do? It's a good question. And I rode that fine line. I call it the razor's edge where cynicism is over here. And you're like surfing. You're like, oh, I'm about to fall into cynicism. Or you could lean and say, God, I don't know what to do with this, but I do have you. You know, when someone's going through a trauma or a crisis in their life, say they lose a loved one, one of the number one questions they have is why. When you're going through a why season in your life, I want you to know something. This is a great tool for your soul. 
Meditate not on what you don't know, but on what you do know. There is something that can be known in your darkest points. God has revealed himself to you. He's like, I'm here. What do you know? He is God. He is good. He is loving. And even what the enemy means for evil, he will turn to good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. I know this. I know that my God is faithful and true. And so even though I can't answer questions like, why is that guy putting on a front instead of just living it? I can't answer that. Is it my job to answer it? My job is to believe Jesus, not to solve the ills of everyone's behavior, not to have to correct everyone around me to say, that's not actually uh, marked by integrity. It's to trust Jesus and to live personally with integrity. And how bad is it for me to criticize the integrity of someone else and not allow integrity into my own life? In other words, instead of clucking our tongues by looking around the world that is fake, let's make sure that the fake is out of us. We can't take anything out of anyone else's eye and help them see until we take the log out of our own. Then we can see clearly. So where the realpolitik side of us, the cynic side of us that has been hurt that has been hindered because we have been harmed by the authoritative structure in our life, you have a better authoritative structure to cling to. And it's perfect, and it's good, and it will never fail you. So three options for handling disillusionment. One is be a cynic. A lot of people, even in Christianity, have chosen that. One of the reasons Christianity has become very unhealthy in the age and generation in which we're in and is lack, lacking its strength is because cynicism is the opposite direction of faith. And faith is the key that unlocks the treasury of heaven. That's why the enemy wants to lean us that way. When you begin to go realpolitik with your perspective in life, you lose the essence and the power of what a believer has. The second one is to stick your head in the sand. This is also a common thing. If, you, if you've been around all those voices, you know, the conspiracy theorists around you, I don't know if you have any of those in your life. We at least all have at least three or four in our life, right? And they're always, some of you might be that, right? Uh, might be the conspiracy theorist. However, you're always, like you're a student of what the devil's doing. Did you hear what they're doing? I mean, the, the Illuminati is doing this now. Oh, did you hear? You know, this is what they're doing. There's tons of information out there, whole bunch of bad news out there. And it doesn't mean that it's not correct. It could be. However, I want you to get your PhD in good news. You could be an expert in the bad news, what the enemy's doing, but I tell you what, you need to know what God is doing. So the second option isn't getting a PhD in the bad news or the good news, it's trying to avoid it at all costs. It's called sticking your head in the sand. I don't hear anything, I don't know anything. And it, it's one step better than being the cynic, I'm not gonna lie, it's one step better to just go brain dead, turn off the TV, it's like, okay, I have no idea what's going on. That's better, because at least you, you're more inclined to think on things that are upright, good, noble, uh, pure, than you are when you're thinking about what the news is saying. But there's even a better model, and that is just be a believer. Get to know his word. What is the good news? Study the good news. Repeat it to your soul. The news doesn't share with you the good news. You never notice that? It's not like they spend, okay, you know, guys, we will share with you what's going on in the world, and then we're gonna take 80% of our broadcast time to share with you about Jesus. 
That would be a weird news source, wouldn't it? And you're thinking, no one would even watch that. Everyone would just make fun of it, right? But that's the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. There are things that you need to know, you need to be wise about in your life. But the main thing you need to know in your life is the truth. Because the truth sets you free. Not the lies, the truth. So when you face a world that is marred with falseness, that is functioning after a real politique model and then spinning with their propaganda everything to make you feel it comfortable, like, oh, your leaders are good and noble and moral, when in actuality they're scoundrels. When you live in a world like that, what do you need? You need a good dose of Jesus. There is only one who is named faithful and true. He is not a career politician, and he delights to do the impossible. His name is Jesus, and he cannot help but tell the truth. It is impossible for him to lie. I gave this list in class yesterday. What is our king really like? First of all, he's known as holy, which means other than. So he could say, yeah, you know Otto von Bismarck? I'm other than that. You know E.H. Carr? I'm other than that. In other words, he is not a cynic. He is truth. He sees all, and yet he still has hope. He still has joy. He still sees the end, and he knows who wins, and he wants us to hear that. So what do we know about our king? He cannot lie. Well, you know, uh, can't say that about most politicians, right? He will not change. You know how as frustrating it is when a politician takes a stance and you, like, vote for him? and then they shift their stance, God never does that. Vote for Jesus and you'll find that whatever his policies are will always be his policies. He is the same forever. And when you come to him in a moment like this, in a time like this, in an era like this, in a generation like this, he is eager to answer you. But Lord, could you steer our country towards righteousness? Could you awaken souls he goes, I, yes. Could I start with yours? Could you get the fake out of the news? All right, how about I start with you? I want to get the fake out of you. God is not real politique. He's the God of the impossible. When God says it's the war to end all wars, which we will have eventually in this age, when he comes in the clouds with the swords protruding out of his mouth and crowns upon his head, the war to end all wars. When he says it's the war to end all wars, you can take it to the bank. He's truth. That's where we put our confidence. Father, introduce us to yourself at a greater level. We want to know the one who is faithful and true. We don't want to put our confidence in man. Even though man is designed to reveal you, Lord, we still must recognize that you alone are faultless. You alone can maintain that perfect leadership. And so, Lord, we want to place our entire trust in you. And, Lord, I pray that you would raise each one of us up to be models of this in our generation, that when people see our leadership, they would see you. Lord, we submit this request to you, knowing that you delight to answer. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. 
Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.